Uh, Please go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, and we are continuing our journey this morning through Matthew's Gospel, and in particular where we've been recently is the Sermon on the Mount. Now in this sermon, Jesus has been describing to his disciples what life is like in the kingdom of God. And we've seen that it's nothing like what they expected. It's not about military strength or worldly admiration or success, but what Jesus described in the beginning of Matthew 5. It's about being poor in spirit, about being mournful. It's about being meek and persecuted. There's a distinctness to the life of Christ's disciples, and that distinctness comes from how they live. It comes from what they value. It comes from their righteous conduct. It's this conduct that sets them apart from the world. And Jesus tells them in Matthew 5, 16, he says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine, so that others may see your good works and give glory to God. Now when we come to chapter 6, a funny thing happens. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus sounds this warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So which is it? Are we to shine as light so that others see our good works? Or are we to practice our righteousness in a way that others don't see us? Well, as Larry helpfully showed us last week in Matthew 6.1, Jesus is giving us a, a principle to walk by. Jesus is not saying... Beware of doing these righteous acts. Beware of pursuing righteousness. He's saying, beware of how you do these righteous acts. And Larry said this, he said, The manner in which we practice our spiritual disciplines reveals why we practice them. And we will be rewarded accordingly. And this is all a part of that greater kingdom righteousness that Jesus calls his followers to. His concern all the way through this sermon is his glory in our hearts. It's not just about what we do that matters, although that matters a great deal. What we do does matter. But his kingdom righteousness has great concern for how we do it. Now, while Jesus has been presenting this beautiful picture of the good life, of of kingdom living, of how to flourish in this world, blessed is the man who does these things, he knows that his listeners will take that and subtly make it about them. Jesus knows that as we hear of the beauty of holiness, that we might begin to then dream about how we might be able to use it for our gain. We take the goodness of God's call and use it as one more tool to use so that those around us will think that we're as great as we think we are. And this is just Jesus' warning against the temptation to do these things so that other people will think well of us. You see, you may do the right thing for the wrong reasons. A hypocrite, which is what that is, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, a hypocrite is basically an actor. They are just playing a part. They are putting on a show. Their actions are not genuine. They are not done from the heart. And Jesus' point here is that the wrong reason to do these things, the wrong reason to do these right things, is for the approval of others. 
And I know this firsthand. I have firsthand experience with this. Plenty of firsthand experience with this. But in particular, when I was a kid, from, from the ages of about 8 to 12 years old, my acts of righteousness, my spiritual disciplines, they looked really good. And I put on a really good show. And I knew it. And I did it all for one reason. The praise of others. Now the question we're all confronted with, the one we must all answer is this. Whose approval are you seeking? Who are you living for? Now the follower of Jesus has has one interest, has one concern. The rewards and blessings of God. Not the temporary and constantly changing approval of others. Now last week we saw Jesus applied this principle to not practice righteousness in order to be seen by others. Applied to giving to the needy. Today we're going to look at this applied to prayer and then to fasting. And if you're here taking notes, like those are going to be the two points, prayer and fasting. And we're going to pretty much spend most of the time on, on prayer. And you'll understand why as we go. But uh, as, we, as we jump in, let us, uh, if you're there, Matthew 6, let us look together at the Word of God, His, His inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative Word for us today. Hear the Word of the Lord. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. I'm going to read to verse 18. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Would you bow your heads and pray once again with me? Uh, Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And may your spirit open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Uh, thank you for this time that we get to gather together and uh, to receive this word. May we be conformed to it. Help us to walk in obedience and help us to honor you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're taking notes and uh, I, you want to mark it up as an outline, again, we're going to go through just these two points, fasting and prayer, prayer and fasting. First point, prayer. Now, in verse 5, Jesus begins by presenting a picture of those who pray in order to be seen by others. These people look for every opportunity to pray publicly. And Jesus acknowledges that they, they do get a reward for this. Other people see them. So in Jesus' day, they, people gathered in the synagogue, and, and there would be people praying in the synagogue. And so they're, they're taking advantage of that opportunity, and, and they're getting what they want. 
people's attention. But that's all they get. It's like a man whose prayer in a Boston church was once described as the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. His problem was that for all of his polish and perfection in his prayer, he forgot that his audience was not the church, but God. Instead, Jesus says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Instead of the showy, ostentatious prayer of the hypocrite, Jesus calls his followers to, to secret, private prayer. In other words, no one else needs to know that you are praying because your Father knows. So Jesus continues in verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now the Gentiles that Jesus speaks of, they sought to say as many great things about God as they were praying as possible in hopes that they might butter God up in order to respond uh, positively to their prayers, that their prayers might be answered. In a sense, they thought if only they could get the words right, that they could wear down God and get what they want. Instead of this, Jesus calls his disciples to simple and private prayer. Now, it would be convenient if Jesus' teachings, and all of Scripture for that matter, if it was organized in a topical way, a systematic way, so that right here we could see all that God has to say on the topic of prayer. But that's not how Jesus teaches, and that's not how the Bible is structured. If this was all that Scripture had to say about prayer, then we wouldn't pray together as a church. Uh, We wouldn't do uh, pastoral or corporate prayer on Sunday mornings. We wouldn't have any prayer meetings. We wouldn't pray during your time of singing. I wouldn't pray during my sermon. We wouldn't pray in small group meetings. It would only be private prayer. But this is not all that the Bible teaches about prayer. In fact, it's clear by the prominent place that prayer played in the early church that they never thought that's what Jesus is, that's all that Jesus was teaching about prayer. But, so Jesus' concern is not so much the act of private prayer. Jesus' concern is that we have the proper motivation in our prayer. We are to pray to God, not to impress others. We are to trust God, not our own ability whether that be in how many words we use in prayer or in how often we pray. God cares about our hearts. And all throughout this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus' focus is. It's it's our hearts. His concern here is the, the how of our prayer. He cares about who we are as we pray. We are not to pray as the hypocrites do, but instead sincerely and secretly. Now some questions we might ask to evaluate our practice of prayer are these. How about this? Do you pray more often or more sincerely when you are alone or when you're in public? Or how about this? Do your prayers in public simply flow out of your prayers in private? Do you love the secret place of prayer? Or do you think that prayer is more likely to be answered if it's phrased in the right way? Perhaps you do make, ask somebody to pray for you because, man, their prayers always sound so good. Do you think that the more words you say, the more likely your prayer will be answered? Have you ever thought that? Now, perhaps these questions may, they prick, they may prick you. 
Uh, because if you can't answer these questions with an enthusiastic yes, then you and I are a lot closer to the hypocrisy that Jesus warns against than the righteousness to which he calls his disciples. Jesus' point is to provide this contrast in what's, what motivates our prayer. In order for prayer to be genuine, it must be directed to God, not to others. We must be committed to its private practice. We want to be a praying people. And we must not think that we can manipulate God if we just say the right things in the right way. Or perhaps if we just pray long enough, then God will answer us. No. Your Father knows what you need, even before you ask Him. That's what verse 8 says. So then Jesus answers this question. How then should we pray? Now it's ironic, very ironic, that in the midst of warning against meaningless repetition in prayer, that Jesus gives what is known as the Lord's Prayer, which is probably the most often repeated but misunderstood prayer that has ever been prayed. Just say seven Our Fathers, you'll be good. But Jesus gives us this prayer not to tell us what we should pray, but to guide us in how to pray. Now this prayer might be better called the Lord's Model Prayer. Because it provides direction for us in what we should ask for in prayer. One commentator describes it as the scaffolding around the tower of prayer. The scaffolding around the tower of prayer. Or the guiding handrails along which the, disciples wa- the disciple walks in forming their own prayers. So we're going to now hold on to these handrails together as we consider this prayer phrase by phrase. Now we could spend weeks unpacking the phrase of this prayer, uh, but we're going we're gonna to plunge ahead and look at it phrase by phrase this morning together. Now Jesus begins in verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now look at the first word there, our. Jesus doesn't say, pray then like this, my Father. He says, our Father. And when we pray, we do not pray in isolation from all others. We don't come to God solely as individuals on a solo, fi- solo flight through life. We come to God as a people, so we pray our Father. We come to God as a people because God saves a people. I've said many times before here, and I'll say it many more times, the Christian life is a corporate life. When God saves you, He doesn't save you to then be on your own. He saves you to be a part of a body. He incorporates you into Christ's body, which is also known as the church. Though we are in a culture that is obsessed with individuality, with individual expression, with individual truth, with individual pursuits, to be a Christian is profoundly and inerrantly communal. Jesus does not call isolated individuals to follow him, but a group of disciples. Someone once said, there may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book, or rummaging around in the recesses of your psyche. But Christianity is not one of them. Those religions may be out there, but Christianity is not one of them. So while there is a place for praying to God in a personal way, that should not be primary in our prayers. So we pray to our Father. We pray with this communal sense. Our Father. And look at that second word, our Father. Father. It's not our God, our great God, 
our Most High God, though He is that, but our Father. When we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, when we are brought from death in our sin to life in Jesus Christ, then we become children of God. He is our Father. Now, in in the time that Jesus was, was teaching this, that idea would have just blown them away. That we can approach God as Father. But thanks be to God that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what Paul writes in Galatians 4. There is a special, a remarkable relationship that we are brought into, that we now share with God because we have been united to Jesus Christ. It is in this union with Him, this life that we have in His name, that we are called sons of God and we can call God our Father. And I do mean sons in this case. Because what we receive is not this just generic childhood of God, but more specifically, we receive the sonship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's Son, and all the blessings of God flow to us through His relationship with the Father. So in Christ, we can pray, Our Father. Thanks be to God. But then look at the location of our Father, which I think is particularly important for us today. I think for many of us, we don't, we don't find it all that remarkable that we get to pray to God as Father. The theological idea that seems to carry our day in our culture is that God is love. So, of course, He is our Father. But what we need to hear is that He is our Father in heaven. He is transcendent and majestic. He is holy and unapproachable. If we fail to grasp something of how great He is in Himself, then it's really no longer remarkable to call Him Father. But we should be astounded that God is both our Father and that He is in heaven. And the problem for many of us is often that God is seen as too low because our view of ourself is too high. But God is our Father in heaven. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now from here, Jesus models for us six different requests, six petitions. And where the first three are all going to be concerned with God and the second three toward us. So our Father in heaven, first petition, hallowed be your name. Now, up until recent history, someone's name, it was closely tied to who they, who they are. And there are still vestiges of this today. So we hear the last name Johnson, and at one point, that guy over there was John's son. So Johnson came to be. The last name Baker, that was given to people because they were bakers. Or Cooper, because they made barrels. When God revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament, he did so by telling them his name. We see this in Exodus 3 as Moses comes to the burning bush and and God reveals his name to Moses. His name told his people who he is. So he is the most high God. He is almighty. He is the great I am. I am who I am. There's a character that's revealed behind the names of God. And to be hallowed means to be sanctified, to be set apart. So to pray that God's name be hallowed is to pray that God all that he is would be revered and worshipped and honored and glorified and seen as holy. 
But there's an interesting thing about this request. Because it's not just that God would do this for God, sanctify your name, but that God would make us holy. That's what really what we're asking when we say, hallowed be your name. That we might revere and worship and glorify his holy name. We were praying, Lord, make us holy when we say, hallowed be your name. But notice who's at the center of this request. Unlike our prayers often are, we're not at the center of this request. Jesus doesn't say, pray, Lord, make us holy. He says, pray, hallowed be your name. And the reason he does this is because we aren't the goal of this universe. And similarly, we aren't the goal of our prayers. The center of the picture has and is and always will belong to God and God alone. So even in our prayer for this greater greater kingdom righteousness, that we might be made holy, our prayer is distinctly oriented toward God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, is the second petition, your will be done, is the third petition, on earth as it is in heaven. Now to pray for God's kingdom to come is to, to pray that his reign will expand and increase more and more throughout this world. To pray for God's will to be done is that this kingdom would come in all of its fullness. Because the most wonderful thing about God's coming kingdom is that God's will will be completely and perfectly accomplished. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now in these three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, they, they really all go together as we look to the end and goal of history which culminates in the full rule and reign of Christ our King. And it asks that God would do that now. It's not as if God is not the King now, but this age rebels against the reality of who God already is. In our sin, we rebel against His rule and reign. Though God is sovereign and perfect, the peace that He brings in His perfect righteousness has not yet been fully realized. It's not fully embraced on this earth. So we long for that day. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, as we look ahead and we anticipate that day when it will be on earth as it is in heaven. Now, while we know these are right and good things to pray for, I think our love of this life or our love of comfort, our love of convenience, or our love for our hopes for the future, they can, they can sometimes mock the sincerity of these prayers. So yes, we want Jesus to return. We all want Jesus to return. But perhaps he can wait until I'm finished with that big project I'm working on. Or maybe wait until I go on that trip. Or I buy that dream home. Or I get married. Or I see my kids grow up. Or I have grandkids. Theologian Don Carson, he asks, Do we really hunger for the kingdom to come in all its surpassing righteousness? Do we really? Or would we rather waddle through a swamp of insincerity? And unrighteousness. Do we really hunger for the kingdom to come? We must be those with our eyes fixed on that coming day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how it is in heaven. May it be so also on earth. And the next three petitions, they all have to do with us and our needs. So the first, the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. 
Now, in Jesus' day, there was a necessary reliance upon daily provision. What you made one day would provide for the next. Now, Jesus teaches his followers that they should look to God to provide for every need. Every need. God, our Father, is the source of every good and perfect gift. So, while you may have never needed to wonder how you have food to eat at the next meal, our gracious God faithfully provides all that we need. Now, this this petition, more than the actual request, is about how it shapes us. To pray that God will give us our daily bread is to bring us into the Father's care for His children. It should develop in us this, this humility and dependence as we look to God to provide for our every need. It should cultivate us in us a, a gratefulness. This is why we often pray before we sit down to eat a meal, thanking God for His generous and kind provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Now the fifth petition also is that, Je- that Jesus gives us is that God would forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now the debts that Jesus speaks here of is sin, our sin. That's our debts. Sin is a debt which must be paid. But how can this debt be repaid? Only God has the ability to pay this debt. And it has been paid through the death of his son. So we sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But if we fail to forgive others of their sins, of their debts, then we have no right to ask God to forgive us our debts. So we pray as we also have forgiven our debtors. When we pray this, we're not putting this limit on the forgiveness that God might bring, but we're aspiring to this disposition of forgiveness. And so important is this idea that Jesus comes right back to it in verses 14 and 15. At every point, Jesus is making clear that, that righteousness is this, it's the matter of the heart. And we cannot be those who receive forgiveness from God or anyone else and at the same time be unwilling to forgive others for their wrongdoing. We must be always looking for opportunities to extend grace and forgiveness toward others, not as a condition to receive God's forgiveness, but as this grateful response to the forgiveness we have been shown. Forgive us our debts. Now, the sixth and final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it once again expresses this dependence on God in the midst of our trials and testing. It's not a prayer to avoid these things, but to be protected in the midst of them. And again, this is not so much about the request being made, it's about what it does to us, how it shapes us. The kind of people this prayer makes us into. We are constantly dependent on God for life and breath and everything. And so our prayers, and Jesus teaches us this here through this model prayer, our prayers should clearly and consistently acknowledge this dependence. I don't know if I've shared it here, but I love how John Calvin, he, he, his liturgy that he developed for the church in Geneva, it began with Psalm 124.8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So every time as God's people together, that's what they're reminded of. We need help. And our only help is in the name of the Lord. So there's this constant dependence that we must acknowledge that rests upon God. And as Marcelo reminded us this morning, our God is good and he is a stronghold for us. Thanks be to God. Now with this request, lead us not to temptation, it's, it's interestingly enough sandwiched between Jesus' words about forgiveness. It seems that perhaps Jesus had the temptation 
toward bitterness at the forefront of his mind. Bitterness towards other. You see, in our relationships and in our interactions with others, we can, we can put on a good show of getting along with others or of extending grace to others. But in our hearts, we may be harboring bitterness toward others. God is not interested in our play-acting Christianity. He is interested in sincere prayer and piety, sincere Christian living that flows out of a heart that is joyfully grateful to God for forgiveness that has been received. So may the Lord help us do that. That was our first point. That was most of the sermon. The second point, fasting. Jesus is making the same point about fasting that he's already made about giving and about prayer. He says this in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now it's clear that Jesus expects his followers to fast. He's not making a comment about the goodness of fasting. But what he is concerned about here is that they would do it in a righteous way. Some would fast in Jesus' day in such a way that it was clear to all those around them. So they were posting it on social media. They were saying, hey, day two of my three-day fast, going great. I'm really hungry. So they looked exhausted. They looked hungry. Jesus says that those who fast in this way, they've already received their reward. They got the six likes from their friends. But that's all they get. So Jesus says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the fasting compliment to secret prayer. Don't even let others know what you're doing. No one needs to know that you're up at five this morning reading your Bible and praying. No one needs to know that you fast every week. No one needs to know how much you're giving. And how are you helping the needy? Your father, he sees you. And he will reward you. The question, again, that we all have to confront is, who are we doing all of this for? Who do we do these acts of righteousness for? Do we do them for God or men? The reward that comes from the world around us amounts to but a pat on the back. Or maybe a few likes on social media. The reward that comes from God is eternal. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But we are a sick bunch, aren't we? In Matthew 5, Jesus lays out this call to his greater kingdom righteousness. And here in Matthew 6, we're confronted with this tendency to take the good practices God has given us and turn them into something that we use for our own glory. It's perverse. Jesus is clear that if, if we practice righteousness for the approval of others, then we may get our reward, the approval of others. But that's all we get. That's it. But there is so much more that God holds out to us in his infinite goodness and abounding grace. And he holds this out to us as our Father. It is his reward that should motivate our acts of righteousness. His reward that should motivate our heart obedience. Our Father in heaven will reward those who obey him from a sincere heart for the glory and good of God, not the approval of men. I love how C.S. Lewis, he famously articulated this idea. He writes, It would seem 
that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So your desire for the approval of others because of this thing or that thing that you've done, that desire is too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And this is the most famous part of this quote from Lewis. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. This is the point that Jesus is making. We are far too easily pleased when all that we do is done for the approval of men. Get your eyes off of the world around you and look to Christ. Let us not be content with making mud pies in the slums when we have infinite joy offered to us in the coming of Christ's kingdom. May we have eyes that are fixed on the beauty and glory of God's name being hallowed and his kingdom coming and his will being done. And may God give, give us grace to walk in his ways. Now, what do we do with all this? How do we, how do we respond to this? I think for, for many of us, I know for myself, we, we respond with confession and repentance. We confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because the reality is, we're never going to do this perfectly in this life. In this body riddled with sin, we're never going to do any of these acts of righteousness perfectly. Even as I'm up here and I'm working on my, as I'm preparing this week and I'm preparing to preach and I'm up here preaching, I'm tempted to do this for the approval of others. And this is how it is in, in all of the things, all of the righteous things that we pursue. We're all, we all face these temptations. So what do we do with that? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we repent and we turn to Jesus, the one who never did anything for the approval of others, but did all that his Father might be glorified. He perfectly followed the will of God, and he did this for us. So we look to him, we trust in him, and we commit our lives to him and seek to walk in his ways. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces us to the heart. And Lord, may we be convicted where we need to be convicted, where we have pursued acts of righteousness for the approval of others, or maybe our own approval. And Lord, may you give us humble and contrite hearts that seek to do these things only for your glory. And thank you that Jesus came and did all of these things for us. Where we have failed, he never failed. Where we have sinned, he never sinned. And he took on himself all of our sin. He paid our debts. So it's to him we look and him we trust. It's in his name we pray. Amen.